Well, I'm not Smedley, and uh, we are not going to be in Romans for a little bit. Uh, we are going to be taking a, a break from Romans, and we are going to be going through the book of James. So over the next nine weeks, minus Easter, uh, minus Easter, we're going to be working our way through the book of James. You can open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. The book of James is most likely the earliest of the New Testament books written, and James, the brother of Jesus, who was one of the primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem, wrote this book, and he wrote it to motivate early Jewish believers to Christian maturity and holiness of life. What James really goes after is how genuine saving faith intersects with the rigors of daily life. And this really makes sense that James would need to give this kind of instruction. Jesus turned the world upside down, much less their world as early Jewish Christians. And so James dives into how faith in Jesus works its way out in the believer's life. In the midst of trials, persecutions, the church functioning in the world as a believer... There is really no area of life that is off limits to James, and I'm eager to go through this book together as a church because I'm confident that there will be no area of our lives that are left unaddressed or impacted by this book. So this morning, we are going to be in James chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. And yes, you heard me right. Nine weeks, the book of James. Not nine weeks, the first 18 verses. So we're going to get a, a broad view, a bird's eye view, which I think will be good for our souls to, to see clearly the, the flow of the book as we step back a little bit and consider what God might want to teach us about himself and his desire for us from, from his word. So let's look, starting at verse 1, James chapter 1. James, a bondservant or slave, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What we see here is a sobering and compassionate call to consider trials joy. To consider trials joy. The believer in Christ is to consider trials joy. The Christian is to respond to the various trials that they encounter. Whatever kind of trial you find yourself in, you are to consider that trial joy. All joy. And James instructs for joy when you encounter trials. When you encounter various trials. This isn't a statement of possibility, but of imminence. This is where James starts, and he does it in an endearing fashion. It might seem abrupt that there's merely an introduction, and then he's telling them, consider trials joy. But look at verse 1. He refers to himself as a slave of Christ. The half-brother of Jesus embraces Jesus as his master and comes to the Jewish believers, not elevating himself above them, but as a slave of Christ. And he writes in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren. The early Jews coming to Christ were undoubtedly going to face trials. And the reality is, for you and me, we will undoubtedly face various kinds of trials. In fact, preaching this section to this body is somewhat sobering because of what we as a church have been through over the last several years. In light of what you, many of you individually, have endured over the last several years. Relational hardships, parenting challenges, loss of employment, difficulty in marriages, couples wanting children, not able to conceive, singles desiring marriage and having to wait on God's timing, sickness, cancer, chronic health issues, death, and the list goes on. Various trials, joy. How does that work? James gives us an unqualified command to consider these things joy. There's no exception. There's no trial that falls outside of this instruction. And what's so sweet is that many of you have been and continue to be exemplary in this. It was such a blessing to read this chapter and study this chapter and think of individual faces and stories and lives who have walked this so well before me. I could say, consider trials joy and just talk about 30 different families in this church as examples of that. But we have 18 verses in one sermon, so we can't do that this morning. Reminded of the command to consider trials joy. 
And, and what James goes on to do is to fortify the believer in this command. And that's what I hope God's word will do for us this morning as we consider this command to consider trials joy. My hope is that God's word would fortify us in our obedience to this command. So let's look together at the instruction to consider trials joy. Number one, knowing God's purpose to mature you. The believer is called to consider trials joy, and James goes in to explain how the believer must know God's purpose to mature you. Consider trials joy, knowing God's purpose to mature you. Now, if you have not listened to Jacob Hantla's sermon a few weeks ago on this section, you need to. So encouraging, so sweet to hear a man with full conviction display God's word in his life so faithfully and then to share so diligently from God's word with us all. I strongly encourage you, go listen to Jake's sermon on this section if you haven't listened to it. For us this morning, consider trials joy, knowing God's purpose to mature you. You must consider trials joy, and one of your greatest aids in considering trials joy is to understand God's purpose in them. Have you ever experienced a trial and thought, what in the world is God doing Why would he allow this to happen? Well, here we actually see one of the primary reasons why God allows trials to invade our lives. And we must understand this. Look again at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And then verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he goes on, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As you consider trials joy, you are to know something, Christian. You are to know something. This carries the idea of a full understanding of something that is beyond the mere factual and that often comes from a a personal experience. You could say it this way, consider trials joy, all joy, various kinds of trials, all joy, knowing something intimately. And what is it that we're to know Intimately. Well, it's this. Look at verse 3. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Endurance. Or patience. Or steadfastness. This is the purifying effect of trials. Trials test our faith. You can test the purity of gold. If you have a piece of genuine gold, you don't mind it being tested. And the test only demonstrates the purity of it. Trials surely demonstrate the validity of one's faith, but it does even more than that. It actually produces something. It produces endurance. To have your faith tested produces deeper faith for the believer. Do you see that in verse 3? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Something comes from the testing of your faith. Endurance. And yet the end isn't endurance. The end isn't carrying on. That's a result, but James takes it further. Look at verse four. And let endurance have its perfect result. What does endurance produce for the believer? That you be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. 
When James talks about the perfect result or that we may be perfect, he's not speaking to moral perfection. There is a day for the believer when he or she will no longer sin, and that is when we are brought to glory, when we see Christ and we're made like him. The word used here for perfect can also mean to be brought to maturity. This is not sinless perfection, but to maturity in the Lord. It's the same root word that Paul uses in Colossians 1.28, where he says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. God uses trials to bring the believer, to maturity, like a fruit that is now ripe. It's what? Oh, it's perfect. It's not that the fruit is flawless. It's simply brought to the maturity that is desired. It's ready for what it was intended. And God uses trials to mature us, to grow us, to strengthen us. And he says that you may be perfect and complete. And this completeness means that there are no gaps in our lives, that God is working in areas of weaknesses to bring forth strengths. In the business world, oftentimes it's encouraged, what, find out what your strengths are and go do those and look at what your weaknesses are and don't do those. Capitalize on your strengths. That's not how it is with God. God refines the man or woman of Christ so that they may be complete. They don't have areas lacking. He matures us. And he uses trials as a means to do that. What a gift from the Lord. What an expression of God's kindness and care. That he would serve us and love us in this way. Trials are designed to bring out and mature us in areas that are lacking. All that we might be useful vessels for his glory, pleasing to him. And if this is what trials produce, if this is God's purpose for us, then why would we allow our impulse to be to escape trials? Why not rather cultivate an impulse that seeks to endure trials well? One author states it this way, the only way out of a trial is through it. Our typical instinctual reaction is that when something gets hard, we want to make that hard thing not hard anymore. How can I remove this difficult situation? And our prayers are oftentimes filled first with requests for removal from the trial as opposed to requests first for perseverance and holiness in our trials. It's not wrong to pray for trials to be lifted. It is wrong to only pray for trials to be lifted. Pray that God would mold you, conform you more into the likeness of his son as a result of whatever difficulty you're facing and rest assured, have confidence knowing that that is actually God's intended purpose in it. He's allowing those things into your life that he might make you more like his son, Jesus. When trials come, do you seek to exercise your will over your trial, or do you humbly bring yourself under God's will with submissiveness and trust? And listen to this. The reality is, is that the worst this world can throw at you is superintended by God to make you more like Jesus. Isn't that wonderful to think about? The hardest Things that this world can bring in your path 
are superintended by God to conform you more to the image of his son. Wow. What an amazing God. What an amazing God. Number one, consider trials joy, knowing God's purpose to mature you. Next, number two, consider trials joy, asking for God's wisdom that anchors you. Asking for God's wisdom that anchors you. Look at verses five through eight. Or for now, just look at five. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. In the midst of trials, James goes into the instruction to pray. Ask God, seek God, request of God. And what is that that we are to ask? It's for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, and the assumption here is, well, we all do. When trials come, the, the ability to just innately consider those trials joy and to respond in a way that's pleasing to God, that could never be found inside ourselves. We need heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above. We need to request God for this wisdom. James actually, in chapter 3, gives a definition of wisdom. Look at, turn one page, probably one page to the right, to chapter 3, verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. In wisdom, we see the fruit of faith intersecting with the challenges of this world. And if you lack those things, which left to ourselves, we all do, we can simply ask God and he will grant them to us. He will give us wisdom. And when the goal is not primarily escape from trials, but being faithful in them, you need strength outside of yourself. I need strength outside of myself. We need the wisdom, and the instruction here is to ask God for it. And what do we see about God in verse 5? He gives. He gives. He gives to all generously, without reproach. It is the Lord's loving desire to impart divine understanding and to do so abundantly to his faithful followers. What an incredibly beautiful and encouraging promise in Scripture that if we ask God for wisdom, when we are in trials and we are fighting and clawing our way to find joy and to trust the Lord and to navigate those trials in a way that, are, that is pleasing to the Lord, we can ask, and he will tend to us in our weakness, and he will give us what we do not possess, and he will strengthen us, and he'll do it generously. His supply exceeds your need. If you ever have the thought, I just don't think I have the strength to whatever your trial is, take heart, dear friend, because God will give it, and he'll give it generously. Not so that you just have a little strength to step forward, but every single day, he will give you exactly what you need to be pleasing to him, to navigate life's trials, to conduct yourself in a manner that is holy. 
And he does it without reproach. He gives without hesitation, without reluctance, without reservation. He doesn't rebuke you for not coming to him sooner. He doesn't rub it in your face that you lack wisdom. He will not remind us of how undeserving or unworthy we are. He gives it generously. He lavishes his wisdom upon us. There is but one condition. Look at verse 6. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. As you request wisdom from God, you must ask in faith. You must believe that God indeed will grant you the wisdom you desire to be able to respond to your trial in a sanctified, God-honoring way. Your request must be backed by genuine trust in God's character, in God's purpose and promises. God calls us to believe in his trustworthiness, to believe that God will give us what we need to be pleasing to him in times of trial, to trust God looking to his wisdom that will anchor us to truth and to him in the midst of the various waves of trials that we find ourselves under. What do you do when you are doubting that God will give you what you need? What do you do? Go back to number one. Know God's purpose. Know God's purpose. Trials often feel like our world is spiraling out of control. They never are. God has a purpose behind every single trial. Big, small, in between. Remind yourself. And then plead with God. God, help me to believe. I know scripture says this. I'm struggling. Help me to believe. If you ask God in faith, God will grant you. Wisdom, but listen, there are perils of disbelief. If you do not ask in faith, there are consequences. If you don't come to the Lord for wisdom, you reject his goodness, you reject his faithfulness in the midst of trials, there are consequences. Asking God for wisdom is not one of the options. It is actually the only option that we should find ourselves in. And the consequences of failure to place your faith in God's granting, the request for wisdom, is certain turmoil. Do not doubt, is what James says. And what might the believer doubt? What might you doubt? What might I doubt? We might doubt that God hears your prayers. That's a lie. We might doubt that God cares for you. That's a lie. We might doubt that prayers matter to God. That's a lie. We might doubt that prayer impacts things. That's a lie. We might doubt that God would answer our request for wisdom. That's a lie. We see that here. We might doubt that God is near to you in your trial, that God is using your trial to make you more like Jesus, that God will give you what you need to endure what we see is that the one who doubts finds themselves in severe instability. Look at verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts, what is that one like? Uh, the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man, the one who doubts, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And anything here refers to wisdom. 
and beyond. He will be a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The one who asks in disbelief doesn't really even ask at all because he foolishly and disdainfully does not believe it will be honored by God. This person is immature and like a child, this one will be tossed here and there by waves. This person cannot expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. There's an instability for this one's soul that leads to an instability of action in the face of trials. They are unstable in all their ways. Don't be this man or woman. Ask God. Believe in God's faithfulness to grant wisdom and that will anchor your soul to truth in the midst of trials that will sustain you in joy as you persevere through them. I think it's appropriate for us to consider where are we failing to believe that God will indeed give us what we need to be wise and holy in the midst of hardships. What part does prayer play in your navigating the various trials of life? My experience among you is a very large part. For that, I'm so grateful. Consider trials joy. Various trials, whatever trials we find ourselves in, consider them all joy, knowing God's purpose to mature you, asking for God's wisdom which anchors you. And number three, consider trials joy, remembering God who satisfies you. Remembering God who satisfies you. It's really remarkable what James does in these next verses. He levels the playing field. And the point of all of this is that God is so much greater than anything in this world. God is fully sufficient to satisfy you. And whether you're one of humble means or you're rich, those things pass away and God doesn't. He is faithful. He is eternal. He is good. And when your greatest treasure is God, and when what you value most is Jesus, the trials of this world hold no real power over you. In trials, we can find joy in them when we stay our minds and our hearts on God as the one who is satisfying you. If your possessions satisfy you, what place would God have? If your relationships are where you find security, what place would God have? But if God is where your satisfaction is found, what can the world touch that would rob you from joy? When God is truly your satisfaction, there is a separation that comes from the things of this world. And God, who has given you a gift immeasurable in himself, is so kind that whether we are poor or rich, it doesn't matter because we're satisfied in God. Look at verse nine. First, we see how satisfaction in God impacts the person of humble circumstances. He says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. So the brother who's lowly is to glory in their high position. Your earthly circumstances might be a temptation for you to lose an eternal perspective. Your temporal earthly circumstances might be a temptation to lose an eternal perspective. 
or to lose your heavenly mindedness. It might be a temptation for you to start focusing more on the temporal things in front of you. And this brother of humble circumstances is one who is poor. Many Jewish believers at the time James was writing fell into this category. This is one who is living in poverty. Many early Jewish Christians gave up everything to follow Jesus. Many had their homes and possessions confiscated, families separated. And despite the trial, despite the hardship, despite not having much earthly possessions, this Christian of humble means was to forget their poverty and actually is called to glory or rejoice or boast in their high position as a child of God. The one who has little in this life can trust God in that temporary struggle because he has a future of divine inheritance that is both eternal and secure. No one can touch it. You might have little things on this earth, but you have immeasurable riches that no one can lay a finger on. In Christ, remember that. Remember Christ who satisfies you far more than a huge bank account, far more than your dream home, far more than your dream vehicle, far more than any gadget you could possess on this earth. Remember the gospel. Know the riches of the gospel. And if you do, that will cast a shadow upon your life that will help you forget your earthly poverty in view of the riches of Christ. Next, the other category that James goes into is found in verse 10. The other side of the principle, just as the materially poor believers should rejoice in his spiritual riches, the materially rich man should glory in his humiliation. What does that mean? Well, the, the, The rich man is to forget his earthly riches. They won't satisfy like God does. They don't last. Look at verse 10. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Why? Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. The believer who is rich should rejoice when trials come for these trials teach him about the fact that those material things have an inability to give inner and lasting satisfaction. Or help in the times of trial. Listen, you can pay for treatment, but you can't buy your way out of sickness. You can't buy off sorrow. Both he and his possessions are like flowering grass, and it will pass away. Why would we cling to the temporal at the expense of the eternal? Don't trade your birthright as a child of God for a stew of earthly possessions. We know money is not a bad thing. Having things is not in and of itself a bad thing. thing. Yet there is a great temptation to find peace or find your identity or find your joy in those things as opposed to Jesus. And for the one who is being satisfied in Christ alone... They are not bound to those possessions. And so when trials and hardship comes, they can actually exalt or rejoice in their humiliation. What God gives in the gospel through his son Jesus 
is eternally impacting. While money and possessions have very little, if any, impact on how we navigate the various trials of life, Jesus, the gospel, impacts every single circumstance we ever find ourselves in for the better. And so we remember, we remember the gospel, we remember Christ, we remember the reality that satisfaction is truly found in him and not one that just fades or passes, but one that carries the span of eternity where we will worship and enjoy and rejoice in Christ forever. The excitement of a new iPhone quickly fades away. The excitement of the creator of the heavens and earth will never dim, only bright for all eternity. The loss of material things is meant to drive the rich person to the Lord and to great, greater spiritual maturity. And so what we find here is that these, these verses, they bring a commonality to the rich man and to the poor man, neither material possessions or, or the lack of them is of any ultimate significance. But Christ, Christ has eternal significance to both. What is of significance is a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ, and he showers all of his children with spiritual wealth that will never diminish or fail to satisfy. No scorching wind will destroy those riches as we face trials, as we seek to persevere in trials, whether rich or poor, we must fix our minds and think on the reality of the gospel as we seek to persevere in holiness for the glory of God. Number four, consider trials joy Understanding the reward that awaits you. Consider trials joy, understanding the reward that awaits you. An aid to fortifying us and considering trials joys is joy is that we understand the reward that awaits you. Look at verse 12. Blessed. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who perseveres through trial. When you persevere through trials, you are blessed. This word for blessed, it's the same word that's used each, in each of the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. And, and to be blessed, it, it means so much more than simply a, a casual happiness. Or to be carefree. This word carries the idea of a, of a profound inner joy and satisfaction. Fulfillment. This is what it seems everyone in the world is pursuing. Unbelievers do it, never finding it. And believers are actually given it in Christ. This blessedness. And for the one who perseveres in, under trial, there is this blessedness awaiting for them. It's also similar to the word that's used in Hebrew in Psalm 1, where we see blessed is the man who delights in the word of God. And this blessedness, it isn't a wish. I hope I'm blessed when I persevere through trials. It's also not just a description, but, but it's a judgment. It's a verdict. It's an enthusiastic reality. 
that the one who perseveres under trial is blessed. When you're under a trial, it is when what you say outwardly must be demonstrated inwardly as you go through it. And for the one who endures through a trial, that one is blessed. The one who honors God and is, and is conformed more to the image of Jesus in the midst of the hardship, that one experiences inner joy and satisfaction in the Lord. Consider it joy when you face trials and you will have joy when you endure them. Again, what a kindness of the Lord. We're called to have joy in the trial. And yet the assurance from the Lord is that there's a reward waiting for you and it's true satisfaction and inner joy when you endure. What a kindness of the Lord. Even in challenging outward circumstances, the reality of your inward state as one reconciled to God is to overpower any circumstance with the greatest reality that you are a child of God. Milton Vincent in the Gospel Primer says this, the gospel is not one piece of good news that fits among all of the bad news in your life. Rather, the gospel makes every aspect of your life into good news because of what you know to be true as a child of God. We can't read this and not just be impressed at the divine nature of God to care for us in such a way. It's so easy to lose sight of these things, to forget these things. And yet God has been so generous and so kind with us. Look again at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When you apply for credit, they do what? They test your credit. If your score is satisfactory, you are approved. And here we see our faith is tested in trials. And and for the genuine believer, it is demonstrated to be true. Thus, it is approved. The testing doesn't make your credit score higher. The testing simply demonstrates what is always already true about you. Well, the same is what we find here. The testing never saves us redeems us. God does that. The testing reveals what God has done in us. That we're approved. We're we're demonstrated as sincere, as as real. It, It pulls back the layers to show what's underneath. And perseverance brings God's approval. And his approval brings this crown of life. And this word for crown is the used it's the word used in an athletic competition. It's not a crown of royalty, but, but rather a crown of victory. You made it to the end. And it was normal in this time that the victor of competition would receive a wreath to be placed on their head. And this wreath symbolized persevering triumph. And every believer who possesses eternal life will receive the fullness of that upon being brought into glory. Consider just for a moment 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul says, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So whatever trial you are in today, or find yourself in tomorrow, persevere. 
Remember the reward that awaits you. Take heart. And by God's strength, endure. Understanding God's generosity and God's care. And the blessedness that comes and the crown that is awaiting for all those who persevere to the end. Next, consider trials joy. Number five, thinking rightly about temptations that befall you. Thinking rightly about temptations that befall you. Each of us will experience trials. And as sure as those trials are, temptations are sure to follow. Yet as we consider trials joy, there is a pitfall we cannot, we cannot fall into. While God allows trials and uses them to accomplish glorious purposes within us, when we are tempted in the midst of those trials, we cannot say, we cannot say, I am being tempted by God. We can't say that. And if we're to have joy in God in trials, we must think rightly about this. How could we find joy in God in trials, trusting his eternal purposes, if we're thinking at the same time, God is baiting me to sin? It's completely contrary to his very character. And that's the point. He doesn't. He doesn't bait us to sin. So we must not think such about him. In the midst of uncertainty, found within trials, this is certain. God's not tempting you. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God's very character is at stake in our thinking here. Temptations aren't a result of God's character. They're a result of ours. They, they come from within us. The sobering reality is that our, your temptations are never God's fault, and they're always your fault. Our temptations flow out of our own nature, our own, follow, uh, our own fallen spiritual disposition, and sin can look so appealing and so attractive, and the reality is, is that it usually is to our flesh, but only for a short time. In our own sinful lusts or strong passions, they deceive us into thinking that evil seems more appealing than righteousness, that falsehood is better than truth, that immorality is more appealing than purity that the things of this world are better than the things of God. That I can control things better than God. And when we find ourselves being lured into this kind of thinking, when we're being tempted, we can't blame Satan. We can't blame demons. We cannot blame our parents. We cannot blame our children. We can't blame our spouses, our friends, our siblings, our teachers, our bosses, our past, our, our current circumstances. And we dare not blame God. Our temptations, they come from within. They arise from our own lusts. Look at verse 14. God says it clearly, and he doesn't give any qualifiers. Well, you don't understand what I'm going through. It's not my fault. I just, no. 
every temptation originates from within. There might be outward circumstances that give a rise for those inward strong passions, but our outward circumstances don't implant those strong passions within us. They're there. Look at verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. His own strong passions. His own deep desires. That's where it arises from. And where do these temptations that come from lust lead? We'll continue to read. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You have strong desires within you for that which is offensive to God. And when those strong desires conceive, they give birth to sin. Literally, when your strong desires give birth, they do so to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That is the cycle of lust. It conceives and births sin, and sin going on and on, taking root in your life, it brings forth death. And then the strong, compassionate plea of James is, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not attribute to God what is originated out of you. When temptations befall you, recognize it is you. It's your lust. And repent. And turn. Confess. We must think rightly about our temptations that befall you. Listen, in in the midst of trials, we're called to consider it joy. But James sees here, and God knows, uh, the presence of joy doesn't mean that we won't find ourselves being tempted. Temptations will come to, to doubt the goodness of God, to want to try to control your circumstances because they're unraveling. As opposed to asking, God, give me wisdom. Help me to be pleasing to you. Help me to endure faithfully. Help me to be a testimony to Christ's greatness, to your greatness in this world. Think rightly about temptations that befall you. We cannot attribute them to God. While God allows trials for the purpose of conforming us to Christ, he is never doing it to tempt us. The temptations come from within. Therefore, they must be addressed at the heart level, which is why we shepherd our hearts, which is why we remind ourselves of the goodness of God, which is why we prayerfully and worshipfully bring our hearts to his word so that we might take our thoughts captive, so that we might set our hearts and our minds on things above, so that we might put on the full armor of God. Consider trials joy knowing God's purpose to mature you, asking for God's wisdom that anchors you, remembering God who satisfies you, understanding the reward that awaits you, thinking rightly about temptations that befall you. And then lastly, James has us look to God. 
Consider trials joy. Looking to God who has only ever given good things and perfect gifts to you. Don't say God is tempting me. Don't be deceived to say that. Look to God. Trust God. He has only ever given good things and perfect gifts to you. Whatever trial you find yourself in is no exception. Verse 17, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't think that God tempts you. He, he would never. This is who God is. He is the giver of what is good. God is the perfect giver of perfect gifts. God has complete responsibility for every good thing that has ever come into your life. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from God, the Father of lights. That is, He is the creator. The giver of light, he doesn't change. There's no variation. There's no dimming in his character. There's no shadow in his character. He is only righteous. He is only good. And James gives the clearest, greatest example of God's goodness in reminding his readers that he saved us. In verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be the kind of first fruits among his creatures. James is speaking to the early Jews saved by the gospel. The word of truth says God brought us forth by it. That is the gospel. He brought us forth by it, the early Jews and us as well, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James is telling the early Jews, God is ushering in the church era. He is saving you. You are the first of those that will be saved. You're the first fruits. Remember this. Remember the gospel. Remember what God has done for you personally. Remember the goodness and greatness of God. The demonstration of God being a giver of only good gifts is that he saved these Jews who were some of the first believers in Christ, that they would be the first saved of many to come. How can you argue with God's goodness when thinking rightly about the gospel? You can't. When you think rightly about your sin and what you deserve, the condemnation you were under in your sin, the just and righteous wrath that should have been yours, and when you think that that God sent his very own son to endure that wrath, to take that punishment, to bear your sin. How can you do anything but worship and praise and thank God for his unmeasurable goodness? How can you doubt God's goodness when thinking rightly about your sin that has been forgiven at the cost of the blood of his very own son? That's how the believer can find joy in trials. My life isn't my own. I've been bought with a price. 
My satisfaction in the things of this world are not my chief aim. My chief aim is the glory of God. And the fact that that is my aim is a gift from the Lord, enabled by the Lord, given to me as his child. And so whatever comes my way, it's, it's temporal. It's light, momentary affliction, which is so hard to say to this body because of the weightiness of the trials that you've endured. And that statement is a testimony to the lightness of the trials that you've experienced compared to other trials on this earth. It's a testimony to the greatness of eternity with God. The trials aren't light because they're easy. They're hard. Heartbreakingly hard. Desperately hard. And yet compared to eternity with Christ, oh, Christ is so much better. And it's worth it. And to have your heart brought to a place where you can pray truthfully, truthfully before the Lord, God, there is nothing in my life that is off limits. Whatever will prepare me for heaven better, whatever will help me to glorify you better on this earth, whatever will conform me more to the image of your son, nothing is off limits. Do what you will. My life is not my own. I was purchased with a price. And so I submit my life to you. That is the best place any one of us could ever be. Are you there? Are you a believer? Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus? Listen, if you haven't, you have nothing. And what Christ offers you in himself is everything. I would love to speak with you after the service, I know any of the elders would be ecstatic to talk to you about these things. Don't wait. Consider what you've heard. And for the rest of us, praise God for his grace in your life that you do this in such an exemplary fashion. And let's excel still more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that is found in him. We thank you for the riches that we found in Christ. Like the one who finds a treasure in a field and sells all he has so that he might buy that field because he loves that treasure. Lord, I pray that we would forsake all the idols of our hearts and that we would look to and cling and embrace you above all else so that whatever trials may come our way, we might consider them joy. That we might find all joy in you, knowing your purposes, knowing your goodness, knowing your generosity to give us what we need, knowing your faithfulness to endure us to the very end. And Lord, our desire for all of these things is so that the name of Christ would be glorified and magnified in our lives in all things. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.